You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Vendela, one of the things that um, really uh, interests me about this book is the the means of uh, creating a plot through revelation that a lot of the plot of this book, a lot of what kept keeps us really riveted is finding out about the character. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how much you knew about the character when you started the book and how much of the the revelation was a revelation unto yourself. And that's a great question. I think there's such a delicate balance when you're starting a book. I'm one of those writers who does not like to know the whole story before I start. I think that would somehow take the fun out of the writing for me. It also ends up being the challenge of writing for me because I get halfway through the book and I think, why do I always do this? Why don't I know the whole plot before I start a book? But I think for me, I I enjoyed having some of the same revelations that Yvonne has um, during the book, meaning that I got so into her character and did a lot of research at first, kind of just background information about what kind of character I thought she was. She wasn't based on anyone I knew. In fact, I've never created a character based so wholly out of out of scratch. I wasn't even, she wasn't even based on someone I'd seen walking by, which is the case of some other characters and books I've written. So I really had to think about who she was. And you know, I was looking through magazines trying to even find pictures of who I thought this woman was. And I went to last time I was in Vermont. I went to Burlington and you know went drove around the city and tried to see where she would have lived and took pictures of houses. And there was one house, I think, before I saw the woman like, coming to the door wondering what I was doing, I took a picture and saw there was a coat rack in the front door, you know, hallway that was very, had no coats on it. And that's where there was a line in the passage I read about, about a coat rack like that. But just little, she really just was like a composite of so many different thoughts I had and so many different ideas I had. And, but pretty soon she became very real to me. And I started the book with the idea that I was going to write about a really happy marriage because I thought there's so many books about unhappy marriages. You know, why can't there be a ha- book about a happy marriage? And then soon enough, I realized <laughs> why. It's like a Tolstoy said, you know, they're, you know, all happy marriages are alike. And I feel that, um, so th- for me, the revelation in the novel that she had had somewhat of a difficult marriage was was fun for me to uncover just as she was uncovering it. And it felt more, I felt more, involved in her quest and her journey because I didn't know the ending when I was starting it. You know, too, this is a a book where it's defined by what's not there. Mm -hmm. And that must be very difficult to to write. Again, how much do you know of what's not there? And how much do you create on the spur of the moment? And, And that sounds like it must be kind of fun. Yeah, I have, there's a lot that's not there, <laughs> meaning that um, I I write, I overwrite at first. I think some writers are painters and some writers are sculptors, and I'm meaning that, you know, some writers start with a with a, a draft and they keep augmenting it and, you know, augmenting and working on it and filling in the shadows and everything. And I definitely am someone who is a sculptor in that sense that I write a lot. My first drafts are are really long, and I always think, okay, this is going to be a big, long book finally, because most of my books have averaged around 250. 30 or 240 pages. Um, this is 225. And so I got to the end of this draft, and then I got to the point where I took out all the extra words. I just thought I, I wanted to, to 
I trust my readers a lot that they'll figure out what's going on. And I think that the blank spaces and the things that aren't said are actually just as viable and just as interesting to readers as the things that are said. And so um, when I was done with the draft, I took out all the extra words and I thought, oh, God, now it's 225 pages. And then I thought, well, maybe the next book will be really long. But now I'm at peace with it, actually. Now I think that I am actually just realized I like reading, I like reading books this length and I like writing them, obviously. You know, it's uh, such an interesting reading experience to, to plunge into Yvonne because she knows herself and we get to know her. A as we get to know her, we know that she's a widow mm -hmm. and that she's, there's, she's experiencing grief. But as a book about grief, this is a really brilliant book because Yvonne's problems don't all stem from grief. Right. And I think that's one of the really... Uh, clever um, pieces of craftsmanship that you display in this book is that we get to know Yvonne um, underneath a very thin uh, mantle of grief. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I didn't want grief to be a central theme. It's obviously something that informed her, but I think it informs her numbness, but her numbness is covering up something that she's been hiding for years, I think. But I also felt that um, when I was writing it, I... Yeah, I, w I want it to be funny, too. I think that humor and grief and humor and sorrow can be more, much more closely connected than people realize. But I also realized at a certain point in writing it that the reader was going to think that Yvonne knew herself pretty well, but there was maybe a point, maybe a quarter of the way th to the book when the reader was going to say, wait a second, I think I know Yvonne better than she knows herself. Um, and that was something that was was kind of a challenge for me to try to do. And it's, I think that's why third person really helped me, too, because there's a point where you can show how other people are reacting to her. Like there's a scene where she gives the same lecture to her high school class word for word twice in one week and she receives a very um, kind of cruel and anonymous note in her mailbox telling her that. And that was kind of a clue to the reader. Okay, maybe she's more, she's more messed up right now than she realizes. And so that was a challenge to try to show that from other points of view while still keeping very close to her perspective in the book. Well, that's one of the real pleasures of reading a book like this, when we, as readers, realize that we know more about her than she knows about herself, and we, she reveals things to us in her dialogues with people right. that she is unaware of. And right. how much are you aware uh, of this character? And, you know, she's not, she's not the nicest person in the world. She's not right. the best person in the world, and that's one of the right. reasons I really liked her. Right. Um, yeah, I think that with my last book, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, I was really surprised. I'd shown it to a lot of my writer friends before it was published, and then when it was published, I was really surprised. A lot of people said, you know, they said nice things about the book, but they would say, God, she's kind of unlikable, that Clarissa, that main character. And I thought, oh, my God, she's unlikable? I just spent three years with this woman. And and I realized that I... I didn't care that she was unlikable. I wanted her to be true and honest, and I didn't... I think that's a different kind of book. I don't, I don't read books to try to find friends. You know, I think that sometimes you read books to be with people you wouldn't normally spend a lot of time with and spend time in their minds. And, and so with Yvonne, I, I definitely wanted to direct a lot of love toward her and a lot of concern and care, but I also just wanted her to be very true and honest. And she's lost her husband, and she's pissed, and she's angry, as I think a lot of widows are, and she's also just reevaluating her life. Um, I t say that because I talked to a lot of women who had who 
were widows when I was writing the book, and they all said something very interesting to me, which was that it was at the two-year mark that things got really hard for them. It was two years after their husband's passing that they really felt like the world was collapsing in on them because it was at that time when they'd finally dealt with all the things that need to be dealt with after someone dies. You know, everything from the paperwork to the putting away of, you know, possessions and and everything. And and at the two-year mark, though, it was also the time when their friends started to try to set them up with other people. And it was just this, and also thought, you know, you should be getting over this by now. It's been two years, move on. And it was a really unfortunate conflation of, of things going on for these women. And they said, without fail, the two-year mark was just very hard for them. You know, um, one of the, there's so many wonderful lines in this book, just sentences to read that, that are just really hit home. And, and one of my favorites was where, where she thinks, I am the mother of whatever household I enter. And that is such a mother's statement. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, other people, other mothers, usually mothers who say that they like that line. I'm glad you did too. Um, that was something, yeah, I don't know where that, I'm sure that line came from some, some some sort of feeling I felt when you know when you're a mom and you want to go on vacation. Actually, I think I know exactly where that came from. I went on vacation with some friends, and I thought it was my time to relax, and I was still kind of cleaning up or advising or you know wondering who was going to turn off the lights. And I think that is it something, especially as a new mother, a new mother, um, you're always thinking how is someone going to get home? How you know? I think about this a lot with my students. That, 826 Valencia, the writing center we have in San Francisco. You know, I have 18-year-old students, and our class will end at 8 p.m., and I'll say, how are you getting home? And they'll say, I'm driving my car. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But, I, you know, I, I think that, yeah, I think that's something any parent can relate to. One of the, the setting of this book, Turkey, that kind of sun-baked, relentless climate where there's no where you feel there's no shade. It, there's a feeling that there's nowhere to hide, and it induces, you know, A, it, it makes you, you're forced to see yourself, but also it induces this kind of a lassitude, you know, um, almost a, a paralysis. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's an interesting choice of, of uh, location to, to take your widow. Well, I was definitely in reaction to my last book, Again, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name is set in the, above the Arctic Circle in Lapland, where Sweden, Finland, and Norway all come together. And it takes place in the winter, in January, when there's maybe two hours of daylight. And I went there three times when researching the book. And so I thought it was definitely not a coincidence that the next book was set in Turkey, somewhere warm, and that I could visit a lot. Um, and I also felt, you know, to be honest, I felt like I'd used up every description of cold and darkness that I that I really wanted to try try using some other descriptions. And and Turkey afforded me that. And it was definitely an accident, though. I went there in 2005 um, to finish that last book, and I had no intention of writing about it. But two years later, when I was sitting down to write a book, this town of Dacha and this very strange rental house we'd stayed in kept appearing in my mind. And I say strange because... Um, the renters had not put away a lot of the things that most renters would put away in preparation for for just some random Americans coming to rent their property. They um, every day we would find you know there was a sex swing, there was nude photos of the of the wife, um, and it, you really couldn't. You thought you would have discovered everything, and then you'd be adjusting the TV or something, and 
you'd find something else behind the TV and you just thought, oh God, when is it going to end? <laughs> um, and I put that de those details in the book because, first of all, I never met the owners in real life, which is why it was fun to kind of imagine who these people were who would leave all these things out in their house. But I also felt that there was something very um, discomforting about the... Um, about the experience because when you go to another country you want to go out and have have time to explore everything you see around you especially if it's a new place you want to be able to taste new things hear new sounds and then go back to a very neutral place like a hotel or some place where you can just digest and process everything that you've been experiencing but I felt when we would go back to this rental house I was actually more on guard because I just never knew what I was going to find and so I wanted to put Yvonne in also that sort of that experience of just never really having a place where she felt she was completely removed from everything else and from the you know circumstances around her. You know, mothers always react the same way to children. They they love children even if they aren't their own. Mm -hmm. And when when uh uh Yvonne meets Ahmet on on the beach, she, she likes him, but as readers we get a slight, I got a, a slightly different vibe. And again, mm -hmm. it's that discomforting vibe. Mm -hmm. it, it keeps us, this novel is, is in some ways an, a novel of suspense and tension, mm -hmm. trying to, you know, wondering what, what could happen that could be more terrible than losing your husband. Right. And then it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, well, ta I, talk about creating that kind of sense of tension, especially mm -hmm. in the scenes with Ahmet where, it, it it frankly reminded me of uh, Death in Venice. Mm -hmm. um, Ahmed is a young shell collector she befriends who um, who becomes the one person she really gets to know in when she's in Turkey and they don't he doesn't speak any English but they become friends and they have simple exchanges. He speaks maybe five words of English but they become you know they communicate in that way that you can communicate with people in other countries sometimes and I feel like the sense of tension and suspense that you refer to, it just meant that when I was writing the book that I had to be very conscious of it from the very first page. I couldn't make it a comedy, for example, because that would just there'd be a tonal shift. So there are just little hints throughout the book that even when she first arrives at the airport, she's afraid that she's been scammed. And then there's, you know, there are all these things that she starts perceiving. She's, there's some people th um, throwing, playing with the little kid in a sheet, and she thinks that actually they're discarding of a body. And then she realizes that there's, you know, a girl comes out giggling and emerging, and she realizes they're playing a game. But these are all little clues that I had to put in to kind of keep the tone consistent that something unfortunate might might occur. This is a book, too, that's really rich in, in symbolic language, in omens, and, and I love that feeling of, you know, looking at the world and seeing items and omens and shadows that... that speak of stuff beyond our, our life uh, and I'm thinking there's a, a book with a mirror on the cover what a, a book beautiful with the mirror on the cover <laughs> what a beautiful idea especially when you're sitting there reading a book it, yes. it, uh, it does something to you as a reader um, that was yeah that was one of those things that I it actually I saw a book like this in real life um, of someone I knew who had I met who had been a model her company given everyone in the um, who worked for them a blank book and had a mirror on the cover, which I thought was very appropriate for, for a modeling agency. And so, um, but of course, when it's given to Yvonne and she looks in her mirror, it's very, it's, it's a different result.
And you also uh, bring in my favorite bird. We have one that lives in our backyard, the owl. Right. And, and did you have an experience with an owl in Turkey? I did not have an experience with an owl in Turkey. I had an experience with an owl in um, Croatia. This before we had children, we used to go away to cheap rentals every summer to try to work. And um, there was an owl that came into this place for renting one day. And I remember... I didn't even see it at first. I woke up and I was in the kitchen. I smelled something really terrible and really strange. And I thought that there was garbage around. Or I was trying to figure out where the smell was coming from. And then I, something made me look up and I saw this figure that just really looked like it was you know, cloaked and it looked very small. At first, I didn't even think it was an owl because when their wings aren't spread out, they're actually, they can be very compact. And I thought that I would put an owl in Yvonne's house in Turkey because I... Owls are monogamous, like some birds, they're monogamous and they mate for life. And I thought that was, it was a symbol of her and her husband, obviously. But also, um, the more research I did, the more I learned that owls, one of the owls in the book dies. And in Turkey, um, an, an owl dying is a, is a bad omen of, of things to come. And so actually the housekeeper who she's meet, you meet in that passage I read, she won't come to the house anymore because she sees this, this owl and... And runs, you know, runs out the door literally. You also bring in some interesting uh, religious iconography in there, and and that's a, a, a fascinating relic you describe. Uh, does which, it? Which did one? You, oh uh, gosh, the oh the oh in the in Konya, the yeah. beard of Muhammad. Yes, yeah. they're actually in Konya, which is where um, Rumi lived, and where a lot of people come, you know, who are really into Sufism, they go there, kind of, it's the, really the Mecca, and there's a museum devoted to him, and and there is the beard of Muhammad that people will circle around and and pray to and, and revere. And I, I remember thinking, really, the the beard of Muhammad, you know, I couldn't I couldn't believe it myself, and I could see why people would be so so reverent of this this evidence of their, you know, of their inspiration for their religion. The spiritual life mm -hmm. brought into the most physical, concrete uh, thing you could imagine. Yes. And, and that brings to mind your penchant for finding hotels carved uh, from the materials of, right. of the land. Uh, will, will we be reading a, a, a novel set in an Amazon forest you with know, a forest hotel? It's funny you say that because um, so my, my last novel, there was a uh, ice hotel in, in Lapland and the character goes and spends the night in the ice hotel which is something I got to do when I was researching it and I, it's actually amazing if you ever go to that part of the world staying in an ice hotel you know you sleep on ice beds and the glasses there's a bar with like with glasses made of ice and I, I was saying to someone afterwards a friend isn't it you know it's not really that expensive when you think about the whole place being made of ice and she pointed out well there's no tv there's no room service there's no clean there's just everything it's you know it's that's a pretty affordable vacation if you're looking for a nice hotel um so is lapland lapland in the winter if you're looking for a good cheap trip is, <laughs> lapland is your is your ticket um yeah i um i feel oh in this in this hotel there uh, she stays in a in a cave hotel and what's strange is in real life i actually never like to stay in fancy hotels i really like just plain motels where the furniture is the same and where the internet access is free but um but I felt like in these places, she ends up in these touristy areas where 
there are these amazing hotels. And so I felt like I had to go to them in both cases. But a friend of mine just um, cut out an article for me from the Financial Times. There was a, there's a new treehouse hotel in Sweden. And, she, and it actually looks amazing, but I thought I cannot do another strange hotel. But everyone should go to the treehouse hotel because it looks really cool. Now, um, one of the things that this book is, does very well is discuss uh, marriage and the, married, the, the state of people, of mind of people who are married. Mm -hmm. a and um, could you talk about creating marriage in, in its own absence? Creating, oh, because the, the marriage is in the past here, you mean? Or yes, in, yes. yes. Um, you know, you, I just thought about different scenes. I had a timeline in my office where I would just think about different things that happened in their marriage and just little events that might symbolize oh, yeah, certain a timeline. things. Yes. Oh, interesting. Yes, and a now, timeline. How, how much of this uh, kind of superstructure do you have to the book? I, I mean, and how does that get, how and when does that get created in the, the writing process? I think that when you're, you're just writing and you have to, you realize you have to keep track of things for yourself. <laughs> and so it's not like the timeline, the timeline actually comes afterwards when you're trying to put it all together. You're midway through. Um, it's also another way to convince yourself you're working when you're not. You're like, oh, <laughs> working on a timeline for my character. Yeah. So. You know, in the excerpt you read, there was a, a, a very funny, funny piece about the, the word of the day. Mm -hmm. And that brought to mind some of the characters that you and your husband created for Away We Go, mm -hmm. the movie, and the sense of humor in that movie, mm -hmm. which I thought was just so funny yet so sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk about um, the difference for you uh, creating a screenplay and creating an, a novel, but there's still that kind of commonality. There's a, I recognize the sense of humor instantly. Well, I think the difference with the, with the screenplay that we wrote, this, we wrote that um, many years ago, he, he was finishing up a book, What is the Wet, which is about, in part about civil war in Sudan and primarily about lost boys in Sudan, and one in particular, Valentino. And I was finishing Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, which I already talked about, and that was also a very dark book. And so we both, I think, wanted just a break from the from the intensity of these writing projects. So we would meet in the living room and just, we'd been watching a lot of Hal Hartley films at the time, so we thought, what if we just wrote, tried to write something in that in that vein, just as a break. You know, we weren't trying to write a serious, we weren't, try, weren't trying to write Gandhi, we weren't trying to write, you know, some very important film. We were just trying to write something that was, you know, a funny development, yeah, yeah, Which exactly, something like that. And so we, <laughs> so the difference is that it was lighter than stuff I usually write. And I guess this other difference is when you write with somebody else, you get instant feedback. You know, when you're working on a novel, you can write a l sentence and think, oh, I think that might be a good sentence, but is it funny? Does it would it make people laugh? And you kind of try it out on yourself, but you know, you're not always the best judge. But with um, when you write with somebody else you can say, okay, well, what if the character said this, and if the person you're writing with laughs, then you know right away that it works. So you get kind of more instant feedback. You know, uh, also in this book, I love the, the portraits of the relationships that she has with her adult children. And this is not something we see a lot of in books, but it's something that a lot of us experience. Mm -hmm. in real life. And so I wonder if you'd talk about uh, creating those relationships and, and creating those characters, especially when her children are twins, which is such a, an interesting choice. Right. I, I've always been obsessed with twins, but the reason I gave her twins was because the two towns I, I read about, Dach and Knidos, one was really old and kind of 
full of people who were orange, like I said, and the other was really beautiful and golden. And I basically the landscape gave rise to the fact that she had twins that would mirror these twin cities and one would be perfect and one would be troubled. And I've just always been interested in, in mother-daughter relationships primarily, actually. Um, I think all my books have really strong mother-daughter relationship themes. And you know, the only one that was slightly based on my own relationship was my first novel, And Now You Can Go, which had a mother, and it was very similar to my mother, who's very strong and very funny and stuff. And in fact, my mom is very proud of that book. When people say to her, are you as wonderful as the mother in And Now You Can Go? She says, yes. <laughs> but fortunately, they haven't asked her about the other mothers because they're not always always the same way. I, you, you talked about these books as a, as a triptych. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how much you thought about the commonality of the themes and, and the different visions uh, of women in these books because I think there are, it's a very uh, interesting um, combination that when we look at these three books, different in tone, different in, in subject, different in style, but we feel that thread going through them. It's the it's the same like looking at uh, through the three different sides of a prism. Mm-hmm. I was very conscious of it actually because I knew from the start that I wanted to explore the themes of violence and forgiveness. And so in each of these books, there's some act of violence either directed toward the main characters themselves or toward people around them and the process of forgiveness. And each of them deal with the situations differently and each of them look at forgiveness in a different in a different way and so that was something I, I thought about a lot like well, what happened in the last book you know what happened in this one and cl- try to show almost different different outcomes different reactions now uh, do we have any uh, questions from the audience yes what about your own life that brought you to investigate someone so different in age and I think the fact that I'd written about, I'd written two novels, I'd written a nonfiction book, as Rick said, and two novels about women younger than myself, and I just didn't, I was done with, with that, and I didn't want to write about some of my own age, and I just was very interested in, in women around Yvonne's age, of 53. Um, I felt that, you know, I don't, I don't know why it was. I just knew that she was going to be 53. I knew she was going to be looking, you know, she was ha- halfway through her life, or, you know, however maybe a little bit more than halfway, and unless she was going to live to 106, which she probably wasn't. Um, but I I just was interesting in that, interested in that, and then I started thinking about how Turkey was appropriate because Turkey is the bridge between East and West, and somehow it just seemed like everything about the book was about a middle point. And it, you know, it wasn't that hard to write about someone who's 15 years older than myself just because I think everyone has different ages within them, and I don't mean to sound like all like crazy and stuff when I say that but I I do feel like everyone has a younger self and part of them an older part of them and you just have to tap into that that age when you're when you're writing I was fortunate in that I'm in a writing group with um, about eight other writers in the Bay Area and I didn't realize before I started the book but um, I didn't wasn't consciously thinking about it but a lot of them are around Yvonne's age and that turned out to be very fortuitous because they could tell me if I was if I was ever off so Any other questions? Now, one question I wanted to ask. Oh, there's you. one there, oh. too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've been um, out of the country for 18 years. And oh, wow. I was coming back. Where were you? Um, so I'm glad to hear about writing groups. Uh-huh. But the question I wanted to ask, is there something about the magazine? Mm-hmm. The Believer. Sure. Um, the Believer is a, a 
I'm not going to say monthly publication because it comes out nine times a year because um, we have three double issues, a film issue, an art issue, and a music issue. And it's um, we started it, two of my classmates from Columbia, from where I went to graduate school in creative writing, um, two of them and, and myself, we founded it in 2003 as a magazine that would devote space at length, you know, lots of lots of pages to books that weren't necessarily timely. So I think sometimes you pick up, you know, five magazines and they're all reviewing the same book that week or the same film and they all give us a limited amount of space because those are the constraints of advertising and everything else. And we thought, well, what if there's a book that more clearly, ref I mean, a magazine that more clearly reflects the way in which we read, meaning me and my co-editors, and we don't necessarily read books right when they come out. We don't necessarily see films right when they're in the theater. We sometimes see films that came out, you know, 50 years before. And what if there was a, a place where people could write really long, you know, at length pieces about these works of art? And what if there was a place where people could be interviewed with, you know, filmmakers and artists and writers could be interviewed at length and didn't have to just do like a four minute, you know, four sentence, you know, Q&A. And you could really get into depth with their, you know, what they were thinking and, you know, really learn about the creative process. So that was how The Believer started. So basically it's a place that's untimely and where words are no, <laughs> have no restrictions. And and we're now on our, you know, 70-something issue. And and it's been, it's really fun. So, yeah, I think that they probably have some copies here if you want to look at, at the one that's I was out this summer. And it's probably, probably still have here is the um, music issue which was really fun and comes with a free CD kind of about the Atlanta music scene um, and its inspirations, its current inspirations, everyone from MIA and, you know, past inspirations like Nina Simone and it's all about the Atlanta rock scene. So, thank you. We have a question back there. Yes. I just wanted to tell you that I um, really enjoyed your uh, Northern Lights uh, ratio day. I thought the story really grossing Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You know, one of the nicest things about doing these book readings and these book tours is that when you're a writer, you are writing by your, you know, you're literally by yourself, and then the book goes out in the world, and people read books by themselves. And so it's actually nice to meet real readers and get feedback. So thank you very much. Well, that's one of the things I think that's interesting about reading is that while it's something we do, you can only do by yourself, it's also can be a, a, a social activity mm -hmm. when we get out and talk. And we're also all, when we, everybody who reads The Lovers is the director of the movie in their brain based on your wonderful script. <laughs> and and, and we're, so we're all kind of seeing the same movie. Now, um, one of the things that interested me about your book is that you had talked about uh, a book that inspired it called by uh, Margaret Dura called The Lover. So talk about um, when, you're, when you start off to write a book like this, and, and uh, again, I, I had a, a Death in Venice vibe mm -hmm. from this. When you set out to write a book, talk about how you deal with those influences and, and how you control them and keep, right. them, keep them back. They're actually can be dangerous because sure. um, <laughs> I had five books in mind when I was, five books on my desk, I should say, when I was writing this. One was Marguerite Duras, The Lover, and the other was um, Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles. And 
The Stranger by Albert Camus, and there were, oh, Disgrace by J.M. Kutsia, which is one of my favorite novels, and I read, reread Disgrace every time I'm about to write a book. And the fifth book that I influenced this book and that I read halfway through the writing of it was A Passage to India, which was actually proved to be very, um, I, don't, I think it was very, very fortuitous that I read it, but also I read it when I was seven and a half months pregnant with my second child. And as soon as I reread it and got to that famous cave scene, I thought, oh my gosh, Yvonne has to be in a cave because that's where she is emotionally. And there was a cave district of Turkey that I had not been to called Cappadocia, which is really stunning and beautiful and looks almost like the, the moon. In fact, parts of Star Wars were filmed there um, just because it, it looks like outer space, but with caves. And I... So I read Passage to India, and I thought, thought, I have to go to Turkey right now, and I have to go to the cave district. And, of course, I had to get permission from my, you know, from my doula and everyone. And, um, and so I went, and I went when I was hugely pregnant. And I think that everyone there saw me. Also, the only dress that fit me at the time was this fuchsia maternity dress. You know, maternity dresses are bad enough on their own. And then the fact that it was bright fuchsia. And I was on this bus going to the cave district, and everyone was giving me the worst looks. And I'm sure they thought I was just going to go give a birth in a cave <laughs> and uh, they were all very concerned um, but that was you know I'm really glad that I ended up reading that and that it influenced the book in this way but I think that's also why it can be dangerous to read books <laughs> when you're in the writing process because you think that I must do I must do that well tell us a little bit about your daily process of writing do you have a set time that you write or a set number of words how, how do you yeah. figure out what when you're at work um, I have a set number of words. I, work, I used to try to write all day, and that just was a disaster because I would spend you know, however many hours in my office, and be the end of the day, I might not have typed a single word, but I would say, okay, that's it. You know, it's 5 o'clock. It's time to stop. And, um, and then I now use a word count to keep me honest. So I, I write about 500 words when I'm starting out, 500 words a day when I'm starting out a book, and about 1,000 words a day in the middle. And that does not mean they end up in the in the book, like I said, I throw away a lot of the words, but I really recommend setting a word count for oneself to all of those of you who are writers in the audience. I think it really helps just because the hardest thing I think about writing is just getting the words down on the page. And if you actually just tell yourself it doesn't matter, I'm just going to write this many words, you're, you're sure to find a couple sentences in there that you'll actually end up keeping. How much longer was this book when you finished it than it is now? Uh, it was probably twice, twice the length. So... Now, uh, have you started your next book? Um, I have. Um, I've sort of started it. I know. Yeah, I have two books. I've never had this before. I have two books in my mind, books I want to write. And it's never, like I said, it's never happened before. And so I think I have to follow my own advice. I always tell my students or people who are working on, you know, believer writers who are working on books and don't know which book to pursue, that the one that you want to write, work on, is probably the book you should be writing. Um, so I think I have to figure out which of the two books I most want to work on. Right now it's a tie. So. Well, we'll certainly look forward to uh, whichever one comes out. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll look forward to, your, the, to the tree hotel in Sweden scene as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Vandela. Thank you, Rick. Thank well, you. I, I, you'll, you get to sign books now. Great. And these books are all going to be read. This is a, an example of why we're all here because we all love to read, and it gives us something that we can't get from ourselves, from our lives, yet it's much like our lives, too. Right. So thank you for joining me, Vendela. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.